Have you ever known the right thing to do and yet done the wrong thing anyways? I was tempted today. Uh, I think I saw the coolest device I've ever seen, seen from one of the coolest guys. Austin bought a Segway, which if you don't know what that is, it basically makes you look like you're the man. Uh, <laughs> And you can cruise. We were cruising the hallways at Grace with this thing. And I was tempted to steal it from him and take off and never come back. I knew I shouldn't do it. I was very tempted to do it anyways. Other examples. Maybe you are tempted in an evening hanging out with friends to eat a ton of Little Caesars pizza, despite the fact that you know it's going to hurt you the next day, especially if you have to work out, or maybe run the ridge in my case. And, uh, and yet I did it anyways. I knew the wrong thing, yet I did it anyways. Uh, on a more serious note, you know it's illegal to speed, but you can easily justify, well, they should have made the speed limit faster and I'm late, and so I'm justified in speeding. You know the right thing to do, and yet you do the wrong thing anyways. Even more serious, perhaps you're in a relationship and boyfriend and girlfriend know they shouldn't be crossing certain lines, and yet they do it anyways. I think we've all been there at one time or another in different degrees. And thankfully, God has given us a built-in system to identify wrong choices when we're about to make them, and this system is called the conscience. Romans 2.15 says that God has written his law in our hearts, our consciences bearing witness and either accusing or defending us. And so I think a helpful analogy is that while the nervous system is the warning system of the body, the conscience is the warning system of the soul. The conscience is the nervous system or warning system of the soul. God has given us the conscience to inform us of right and wrong and even to cause remorse or regret when we do right or wrong. Now, the conscience can be seared, in other words, subdued and dulled down by continually ignoring it and sinning, and likewise, it can be trained and bolstered up. As believers, hopefully our consciences are being trained in the Word of God. We are building a robust understanding of what God's will for us is, and that is informing the conscience as we grow in our faith. And yet, friends, as believers, can we still make wrong choices? Do we still make wrong choices? As believers, can you know the right thing to do and yet choose to do the wrong thing anyways? Absolutely. So, that's the idea with this series. What we want to do is inform the conscience, build up the conscience, train the conscience, and really show you what way of living will ultimately lead to regret and help you to avoid that way of living. We want to produce a repentance that does not lead to regret, but that pursues God with all of your might and your joy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to draw some life lessons from a man, and in particular a book, in order to do this. And collegians, listen, my desire for you is that you would not look back on your college years and have any regret. What we want to do is inform you how to walk in wisdom and how to walk the way of the fool. We want to, in a sense, build your conscience up with the truth so that you are equipped to make good decisions now and for the rest of your life. By God's grace, I walked with him through college, and because of that, I have far less regrets than many people do. That's my hope for you, too. My college wasn't perfect, but it was better than it could have been. And I want us to all be able to look back and praise God for the college years. Amen? Amen. So... 
That's what we're going to do. We're going to dig into Ecclesiastes. And before we do that, we're going to take a look at one man's life tonight. Kind of in an autobiographical, not auto, a biographical sense of, uh, of the man named Solomon. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and in this he records observations and experiences of his own uh, understanding of the big questions of life. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? How do you find lasting joy in life? And so that's where we're going to go next, and yet tonight, what I want to do is look at his life before we get to the book that he wrote. And so let's look at first God's plan for Solomon before he was even born, before he was even king. Who was Solomon? Well, Solomon was the son of David. Solomon was the son of King David, and he was the last king in the United Empire of Israel. Israel as a whole had only three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, before it split, and it was all downhill from there. And Interestingly enough, Solomon was not David's oldest son, but he was David's son that God chose for the throne. And that's going to be important because what we see is that God's purpose is expressed for Solomon in a very sovereign, uh, chosen sort of way. So with your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel. I think there's a slight typo on your handout. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to begin to lay the foundation of who Solomon was and what his significance was. In 2 Samuel 7, what we have is the Davidic covenant. Major significance as you look at the theme of the Bible as a whole, building off the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And in this chapter, you have three aspects of a promise given to David and his seed. A kingdom, a house, and a throne. Ultimately, this will be or was fulfilled in Jesus, and yet in the meantime, from David's standpoint, there would be near fulfillments as well. And so, look at... uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and as we lead up to verse 12, David has just said, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God actually says, no, David, I don't want you to build me a house. Instead, verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, your throne be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now let's try to understand this passage a little bit better. There's a few things to sort through. I think actually here within the intent of the author, there are three levels of fulfillment of this promise from God to David. The first and most significant, though the the farthest out, is fulfillment in Christ. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet Jesus fulfilled this promise given to David in the fullest sense. In verse 13 and 16, it speaks of the eternal reign of one of David's sons who would sit on the throne which ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. And yet, I don't think it's a stretch. I think it's actually a biblical case as to why Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And just listen to this passage. In Isaiah chapter 9, I think you'll recognize it. It's a common passage. Verse 6, prophesying Isaiah 800 years before Christ's time, he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. 
And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Have you heard this before? It's often read at Christmas time. Clearly messianic, speaking of a God-man who would come, who would be called God, and yet also the government would be upon his shoulders. This is speaking of Messiah. And yet listen to the next verse. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. So Isaiah is making the connection that Messiah would sit on the throne of David and would be its ultimate fulfillment. So returning to 2 Samuel, this prophecy to King David from God is actually looking ahead to Messiah. But there's another level of fulfillment of this. There's an aspect in which this is fulfilled in all of the kingly line between David and Messiah. In other words, all of David's sons who would reign. And we get that from verse 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. All you have to do is keep reading beyond this point, and you see that the sons of David sinned greatly against the Lord. In fact, I, I did a study one time studying the kings, and it was almost every other, at least in the, the tribe of Judah, every other king. This guy did right, this guy did wrong. This guy did right, this guy did wrong. This guy did right, this guy did wrong before the Lord. And so this prophecy is fulfilled from the time of David until Messiah in that God is, in a sense, preparing the throne for Messiah. We know that Jesus didn't sin, so verse 14 couldn't be about Jesus. And yet, friends, I think there's a third level of fulfillment of this passage that actually more specifically applies to us tonight, and that is toward King Solomon in particular. It says that he shall build me a house. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so 1 Chronicles 22 records David, uh, David's son Solomon building the temple for the Lord. Uh, David wanted to build it, but God ordained Solomon to build it. And what's neat about the temple that Solomon built is that it was the most glorious, the most majestic, the most fancy and expensive thing of that day. Up until that point, the world had not seen something this beautiful. There's chapter after chapter after chapter of details about the glory and splendor of the temple of God. Just breathtaking. And the idea was to represent God's majesty and holiness. Jerusalem, likewise, hit its all-time peak under King Solomon. Never again has it reached the point at which it was reached under King Solomon. And so this prophecy is about Solomon. And now here's the point of this consideration, is that Solomon's life was ordained by the perfect and sovereign plan of God before he was even born. Did you catch that? God planned out Solomon's life before he was born. Now I want to develop this further with you. Flip over to chapter 12. Look at how God is just working in the midst of Solomon's life. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24 then David, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. So again, we see, had Solomon done, done any good or any bad? No. Had Solomon done anything to earn the favor of God? Absolutely not. And yet God in his sovereignty and mercy and grace has a plan to use Solomon in a specific way for his glory. 
So that's what's exciting. That's who we're going to study tonight and look at. Uh, he had a, a special place in the heart of God. And his significance, therefore, and his importance and his role in writing Scripture, Solomon wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. His role, his role in redemptive history, all of this is ordained by God to be learned from by us. I'm going to bring this up later, but Romans 15 verse 4 says, These were written for our sake that we may learn from them. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to learn from Solomon as an object lesson in order to guide us into the path of wisdom. Okay, well, this was Solomon before birth, but what was his life like as a grown man? What did Solomon turn out to actually do? Well, thankfully, the Bible records this as well. Turn back to, to the right, that is, to 1 Kings chapter 1. And here we see Solomon's rise as king trying to get a biographical sketch of who Solomon was, what he was like. 1 Kings chapter 1. And 1 Kings 1 records Solomon's career as king and records how it had an interesting start. I'll let you just kind of skim some of the headings and, and as I'm talking, you can skim chapter 1. But basically what happened was a man named Adonijah, who was Solomon's half-brother, held a bunch of meetings with some of the men in the town and they essentially attempted a coup. In other words, they attempted to take over the government by force. And so on the far end of town, Adonijah and his men set up this new system where they say, Adonijah's king. Well, David knew God wanted Solomon as king. And so David responds and he sets Solomon up on the throne in front of all the people and gets all the people more in the center of Jerusalem to shout, long live Solomon, long live Solomon, Long live Solomon. Just drama, right? Does this not remind you of like a reality TV show today? I mean, you've got this division of the town, people shouting for him over there and him over here. And as I'm reading 1 Kings 1, I'm like, man, this is something else, really. <laughs> so essentially, David goes to bat for Solomon and Solomon becomes king. Now, in the midst of that, at first he shows mercy. If you look at uh, verse 38, at least in my Bible before, verse 38, it says Solomon anointed his king. He shows mercy to his half-brother, Adonijah. And yet then Solomon receives a very exciting commission. And I want to look at chapter 2, a charge from King David to Solomon. And before we read this, let's try to understand the weight of this. Who was David? Was David significant? Oh my goodness. A man after God's own heart. This is King David, the king over all of Israel, millions of people, and a famous king in all the earth. This is the man who wrote so many of the Psalms that we have and did so much for the Lord. And now he's going to give a one-on-one -on -one talk with his son, and pass the baton to him and say, it's your turn, Solomon. With that in mind, imagine you're in Solomon's shoes. Look at 1 Kings 2, verse 1. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." 
Listen, friends, I don't think there's a weightier or heftier baton that can be passed than what's being passed here. Furthermore, Solomon is being encouraged by his own father, do this and do it well. Now think about the confidence that he should have and could have had. He knew that God sovereignly wanted him on the throne. He was David's chosen son to be the successor in Israel. And now David is passing the mantle, so to speak, to his son Solomon. And so the question is then, how would he do? How would this supposed man of God do as a king in Israel? Well, we don't have to go far. Just 1 Kings chapter 3. And we see the beginning of his rule as king. 1 Kings 3 verse 1, Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And here we go, verse 2. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Let's try to understand this. What were these high places and why does he say except here? Why is this an exception to David's or to Solomon's love for the Lord? Well, you may recall Israel had a time of wandering in the wilderness, the 40 years with Moses. And following this, they went into the land in the conquest led by Joshua and Caleb. Now, the Lord's commands to Joshua and Caleb were very specific. And he told them, you need to wipe out these people completely. Women, children, and of course the men who were the warriors. At first glance, does that seem cruel? Do you question God in this move? Well, let's hold on. Before we put God on trial, think about this for a moment. These nations were practicing pagan worship. They were worshiping false gods. And friends, this was not a light thing. For one, it's idolatry. For two, these worship practices led them to do things like sacrificing their infant babies to a statue of a giant head with hands out like this, and they would set their infant babies on these hands and burn them as a sacrifice. To what? To nothing. To stone. To a made-up God of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. So these are the sort of practices that God is trying to protect his people from intermingling with. And he knew, even if you leave the women and the children, this will infiltrate you. Well, what did Joshua and Caleb do? They disobeyed. They left some. And look at the results of this. Verse 2 and 3, 1 Kings chapter 3, there were still, there were still sacrifices being burned on the hill. Man, just tragic. We see this come up later too in our, in our evening study tonight that Solomon was still <laughs> mixing worship of God with worship of these false idols. Now, here's a difficult question. <laughs> at this point, is Solomon pleasing to the Lord? Well, it's kind of complicated. Look again at verse 3. It says, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father, except he had still intermingled this. And so it's kind of uncertain at this point, and yet I don't want to indicate that it's all bad with Solomon. There's some good here too. Look at verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. 
Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So, here's the request, verse 9, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? (laughs) What would you ask for in this scenario? If you put yourself in Solomon's shoes and God says, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you, what would you be tempted to ask for? In other words, what are the desires of your heart that would come out when an all-powerful God said, ask of me what you wish? Would you want a house in every country or at least every continent? Would you want a new car? Would you want to be the CEO of a company? Would you want a whole lot of friends? Would you want a boyfriend or a girlfriend? What would come out when asked this question? And so I think we have to credit Solomon here that when asked the question, his request is actually fairly admirable. He asks for wisdom. And why does he ask for wisdom? First, we see his request. He asks for wisdom above all these other things. Secondly, look at the motive of his request. Verse 9 again, he says, to discern between good and evil. In other words, he wants to judge the people in a way that is pleasing to God. His motive was to be a good judge and overseer of God's people in this time. It's not all bad. So, looking at Solomon, he is granted this request then. If you read on in verses 10 and following, God gives him this. And in the sovereign recordings of the Spirit of God, what we have right after this in verses 8, 16 through the end of the chapter is an example of Solomon's wisdom on display. And you can read it as I'm talking if you'd like, but here's essentially what happens. You have two women, single women. They both have infant babies. One woman's baby dies. And so what does she do? She steals the other woman's baby. So they get in this conflict about whose baby is it? The people don't know what to do about it. So they bring it to King Solomon. So they present the case to King Solomon And I imagine him kind of pondering this for a moment. Not too long, but just for a moment. And he says, bring me a sword. And he says, split the baby in half. Give a half to that mom and a half to that mom. Well, the woman who had stolen the baby says, yeah, I think that's fair. Let's do that. You get half and I get half. Of course, the baby would die. The other woman whose child it actually was says, no, 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 no. Just give her the baby. It's fine. Give her the baby, but let it live. And what does Solomon deduce? Okay, this is, the, this is the baby's mother. Give the baby to her. Now what happens from this is where the significance is. Look in your Bibles, 1 Kings 3, verse 28. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. The wisdom of Solomon produced fear and reverence in the entire nation of Israel. And this example shows how quickly he could judge and discern. In other words, gang, this wisdom was truly from God and it was truly miraculous. I've said this, but I'll say it again. He was the wisest natural born man to ever live up to this point or after this point. And I say natural born in order to exclude Jesus from 
the comparison because that's just not fair. But aside from that, of all natural born men, he was the wisest. So we see his wisdom on display. And what happens from his wisdom, we're just trekking through here. We're kind of building this understanding. Then we're going to look at the implications in our lives. But chapter 4 is, again, a description of his wisdom, but really it's a description of his wealth. And wisdom, in his case, leads to great wealth. Just to summarize the description that starts in verse 20 uh, through the end of the chapter, Solomon had thousands of horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He had a throne, get this, <laughs> he had a throne made of ivory covered in gold. If that's not extravagance. Every meal in his palace was a grand feast, far more food than he could eat. Gold was so abundant that even common utensils such as forks and cups were made out of gold. And five chapters in 2 Chronicles, verses, or chapters 2 to 7, are devoted to describing the building and the appearance of this glorious temple. Just unbelievable. We'll get into it in Ecclesiastes 2 later on in the semester. But in addition to the temple, he had gardens everywhere. Huge gardens. He had huge ponds. He multiplied buildings, built huge buildings. Just everything you can imagine. The, the exuberance of this kingdom was truly fascinating. And I think it stemmed from Solomon's wisdom. His wealth came from his wisdom. In addition, soon Solomon would begin to write. And being the wisest man in the world, he, when he wrote, it was good. And he wrote these proverbs, and he wrote about nature, and they got out to the rest of the world. They got out to all the surrounding nations, and people were just captivated by his writing. And really, quickly, he became a famous king. If you look at chapter 4, verse 34, it says that men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So all the kings had heard of this wisdom. Now they wanted to come and they wanted to see it in person. And once they saw it in person, they wanted to get on his good side. So what would they do? They'd give him more gold, they'd give him more silver, they'd give him more horses, more building materials, more fancy stones, and his kingdom just amassed and amassed and amassed. So this is the start of Solomon's career, and I just want to pause now and think about this. We've kind of built the understanding of his life. What a life, right? You put yourself in his shoes, he's got to have it all. He's got to have ultimate fulfillment, ultimate happiness. Again, just to compare, uh, LeBron James, Tom Brady, Beyonce, whoever you want to throw out that's a celebrity today, Solomon had it way better for, compared to their time. Solomon was the richest king ever. He had everything at his fingertips, whatever he wanted, far greater than the celebrities of our day. And yet, was Solomon truly happy? Did Solomon have peace in his soul? And to return to our introduction, I wonder about what was Solomon's conscience like? Was his conscience gnawing at him as he began to take steps away from the Lord and looking for satisfaction in the things that the world had to offer? And the answer is no. I don't think he had peace in his soul. I don't think he had a restful conscience. We're going to show you that in Ecclesiastes. What happened was Solomon had lost his focus on God and he lost even the reason for his wisdom in the first place. As a consequence then, he fell away from the Lord. He fell away from the Lord. Though he knew the right thing to do, 
He chose not to do it and to disobey anyways. Did Solomon know the right thing to do? He grew up in David's home. David, King David. Yes, Solomon knew the right thing to do, and yet he chose not to do it anyways. And in fact, while 1 Kings 10, if you skip forward, forward a few chapters, 1 Kings 10 continues to outline his riches. You've got the Queen of Sheba and his wealth. If you look at 14, his wealth, splendor, and wisdom just continue to abound and abound. By this point, you're like, okay, we get it. He's really wealthy. Uh, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. And stop right there. There should be a few words that ding on your radar as concerning in these few words. The first is uh, many. I don't believe God has designed us to love many women or women for you to love many women or many men. <laughs> many men, at least not in an intimate way. And so that's the first thing. He loved many foreign women. And then the second word is foreign. He should not have been loving foreign women. And to help you understand this, I think it would be profitable for us to go back to Deuteronomy, the fifth book in your Bible, and see this firsthand. Because this is, <laughs> it's too clear of a connection to miss. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says, Solomon loved many foreign women. And we'll see what these women did to him in a moment. But first, look at the clear command and really the, the foresight, the prophecy of God Riding through Moses in a time before Israel even had a king. Israel had never had a king. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, he says, When you enter the land, so again, there's prophecy, they're going to enter the land, which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, which, by the way, they had to go through the period of the judges before they would request a king. So God is just looking ahead. And when you request a king, verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Let's quickly try to understand what's happening here. God is saying, do not multiply, verse 16, Horses, in other words, military power, in other words, glory and fame. Don't multiply these. When your kings are there, do not allow them to do this, people of Israel. Secondly, don't multiply your alliances with people. In other words, your security, your national alliances so that everything is secure. God wants them to trust in him, not to have idols of power and glory with military or alliances. Verse 17, don't multiply wives either. He doesn't want them marrying around and having multiple wives. Again, the idolatry of women or relationships. And lastly, don't multiply what? Don't multiply silver and gold or money. And so these are the things that God is laying out when you have a king that they should not multiply. And what does Solomon do? What does he multiply? He multiplies horses. He multiplies alliances. He multiplies wives. And he multiplies his gold. Exact disobedience on all of these areas. So, returning to 1 Kings, when it says he loved many foreign women, this is a connection point. And now look at verse 3. Here it is even more clearly. He had how many wives? 
It says in verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And look at this, friends, and here's the devastating part. His wives turned his heart away. They turned his heart away. And not only did they turn his heart away, but they turned it from God and they turned it to false worship of idols. Look at verse 4. This is tragic. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for the Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Listen, gang, these are the exact gods that I was telling you about that did the pagan practices of sacrificing their infants. Solomon, therefore, allowed these other affections, these idols, to turn his heart away from the one true living God and to turn them to idolatry and pagan worship. He disobeyed God. As a consequence, he fell from God into idolatry. Now, in case we're having a hard time connecting the dots, do we not face this same battle today? Are there principles here for us? Implications for us? Listen, gang, the Christian life is a battle for the heart. It is a battle for idolatry. 1 John, the last chapter in it, or the last verse in it says, little children, watch out for idols. Furthermore, in 1 John, what does he call these same areas? He says, watch out for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the same points recorded in Deuteronomy 17. Solomon undoubtedly disobeyed his conscience. He had full exposure to the truth. And yet, he went against his conscience. He transgressed the Lord, and it led him into a very dark time in life. So, what I want to do now is close with some lessons. And we've seen a glimpse of Solomon's life, and I want to apply it to our hearts in case it hasn't been yet. Romans 15.4 says, What was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, one purpose of the Old Testament is to instruct us by way of example, in the good way, an example in the bad way. And so we need to look at Solomon and see what is God wanting to teach us in this passage. And the first thing that I think we need to glean from this is this. Just because you start well doesn't mean you'll end well. Can you attest to that? Just because you start well doesn't mean you'll end well. Think about Solomon. He was loved by the Lord. He had a father who was called a man after God's own heart. He was ushered in as king despite opposition, and the text even says he loved God. And yet, as we saw, he didn't obey the Lord, and that led to him altogether turning from the Lord to pagan worship. What's sad about this, though, is that this is not a problem that is unique to Solomon. This is recorded in other places in Scripture, too. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. There we are again. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In other words, some started off good, 
And now they've shipwrecked in regard to their faith. And so what is Paul's command to Timothy? Well, it's to keep a good conscience. In other words, don't ignore your conscience. Don't sear your conscience. Don't choose the way of sin willingly over and above the way of obedience. Just because you start well doesn't mean that you end well. We need to learn that. Secondly, you can be doing all the right things and yet not have the right heart. Agreed? You can do the right things and not have the right heart. Think about Solomon. He was doing a lot of the right things at the beginning. And yet it became evident that his heart wasn't in the right place all along. Or at some point, he allowed his heart to stray. Likewise, you and I can be going through the motions. We can be going to church. We can be coming to Cross Life, going to Bible study. Maybe you're at Bible college. Maybe you're spending personal time in the Word every day. And yet, your heart is not right before the Lord. If so, it's only a matter of time before these alternative uh, motives, these alternative drivers are going to run out. The gas is going to run empty. In other words, if you're doing something for a friend, or you're doing something for attention, or you're doing something because you like a guy or a girl, it's going to run out eventually, and you're going to be exposed. And so what I'm not saying is if your motives aren't 100% pure, just stop doing everything until you got your heart right. No, keep going. Keep doing the right thing. But listen, gang, we need to be training our heart as we do this. Amen? We need to be adjusting our affections, focusing back on Christ. And here's a guiding verse for this, 2 Corinthians 11.3. We need to guard our minds from being led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Did you catch that? We need to guard our hearts and our minds from being led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. There's a lot of things we do that are good that are not driven by good motives. And they kind of are like temporary crutches. They can help us for a while, but eventually we need to get off that crutch and center our motives on Christ. So that's the second thing we learned from Solomon. Thirdly, who you spend your time with, and listen to this one. This is crucial. Who you spend your time with will influence you one way or another. We briefly looked at 1 Kings 11 and saw that one cause of Solomon's departing from the faith were the women that he surrounded himself with. Who you spend your time with, likewise, will affect your friendships. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. And you think about this verse, you can start with good character, start with godly motives, and yet it can be corrupted. It can be turned aside by those who you surround yourself with. Likewise, Proverbs, likewise, Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. And for me, this is uh, a great encouragement and I think uh, goal for me is that since I've been a Christian, I've wanted to put myself around older men, wiser men, godlier men than me in hopes that some of it might just ooze off onto me. I'm still waiting for that to happen. But nonetheless, that's what I'm trying to do. And in, in the same sense, listen to this proverb. The reason I do this is because it says, whoever walks with wise will become wise. And yet the second half says, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The companion of fools will suffer harm. If your closest companion, companions are fools, which Psalm 14.1 defines as the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So I think a fool is someone who does not follow God. And if your closest companions are fools, then you will pay the consequences. You will be influenced and not in a good way. Now, if this is true of our general friendships, how much more true is this of a relationship? 
how much more true of this should this be then of a guy-gal relationship? One passage in 1 Corinthians says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Friends, if you're a believer, you have no business dating an unbeliever. It's going to bring you down. You are not going to bring them up. They are going to bring you down. And so on the basis of Scripture and all these passages, they apply to our friendships and relationships. And the fact of the matter is, is that who you spend your time with will influence you one way or another. Therefore, seek to have your closest companions whether the same sex or a different sex, your closest companions as those who love the Lord and are going to sharpen and encourage you. Yes, we want to go into the world. We want to make an impact, right? We want to be lights for Christ. But your core friend group needs to build you up so that you can stand in the midst of that trying time. So, in closing, where do you fit in with this story? So we're looking at implications, we're looking at Solomon's life, and we want to try to relate to this and understand it and be introspective. Maybe you're like Solomon, raised in a God-fearing home, given immense privilege and opportunity. And the question is then, are you squandering this or are you using it for the glory of God? Maybe you're like Solomon and that you're currently in a dark place in life, at least where Solomon ended up. Maybe that's you right now. You're in the rut. And if you are, then I want to encourage you. There is great hope for you. Listen, friends, do you know who the Apostle Paul was before he was the Apostle Paul? Well, his name was Saul. And do you know what Saul was? He was a Christian killer. That's who he was. And God reached down, unblinded his eyes, regenerated him him from within, gave him a life and a ministry and a productive, meaningful life for Christ. That can be you too. Turn to Christ. Turn to him. Thirdly, I would not doubt that many of us here tonight are just simply indifferent. We're apathetic. You're not in darkness, but you're not really on fire for the Lord. And I think this is the group I want to warn tonight. I want to compel you to think differently. Solomon was indifferent. He grew up in a Christian home, you could say, if we're translating it to today. You know, David's your dad. Okay, great. You start off king. You know, things are going good. But listen, He was apathetic. He was indifferent. He did not take obedience seriously. And what happened? Sin came for him. If you're not pursuing the Lord, remember, sin is pursuing you and it will overcome you. So, I think there's much for us to reflect on tonight. In light of that, let's pray together as we close in one more song. Father God, we are so privileged to have your word. We're privileged to get to gather together, to get to enjoy the company of one another, the fellowship, Lord, the worship and the teaching of your word. Lord, help us, Lord, to respond in humility. We know that you are opposed to the proud, but you exalt the humble. Wherever we're at at in our walks with you, Lord, we can come to you right now with humility, with a humble heart and a humble mind, and we can change. We can repent and make a life change right now, as we call out to you. We pray that your spirit would do that in us. Lord, specifically for those here who don't know you, who don't know what it means to be a born-again Christian, to have life and life abundantly, we pray, Lord, that through the, the, the midst of this evening, they would come to know you, that they would see that there is emptiness in all other pursuits aside from Christ, and that they would turn to Christ as their Lord, their Savior, the master of their lives. Lord, do a work. Save God.
Bring glory to yourself. And Lord, for the rest of us, bring glory as we change and seek to glorify you better and better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.